0: You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the
1: Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to
2: reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really
3: difficult, difficult thing to grapple with.
0: This is KCBS In-Depth. 2020 was bad enough, but with the economy still in shock, much of society still in lockdown, and the virus still spreading, it's left behind a wicked hangover. I'm Keith Menconi, this is KCBS In Depth, and today on the program, now that the new year is well underway, we consider the lingering challenges of 2020 and what's being done to meet them. We've got three conversations for you today. So in just a little bit, we're going to hear about challenges in the education system and the massive learning loss suffered by students since schooling went online. Because these are students who have been disconnected from school for a year. And we're also going to discuss the still unfinished effort to get California's homeless population into shelter.
1: It was never going to be enough. That was always the problem.
0: But first, we turn to the political chaos in Washington. We're going to start things off speaking to one Californian who's stepping right into the middle of that fray, Alex Padilla, who was sworn in as the state's junior senator just over a week ago. Who spoke recently about how he's setting his priorities as he takes office when there's so much to be done. Alex Padilla, welcome to the program, and congratulations on assuming office. I want to start off talking about priorities. Uh, You've set as some of your own highest priorities pandemic response and immigration reform. Um, We've already seen the Biden administration make proposals on both fronts, but obviously the majority that Democrats hold in Congress is slim, and Republicans have been pushing back. So uh, starting with pandemic relief and uh, Biden's $1.9 trillion package, Given that political reality, where is there room for compromise in your book, and uh, what's the bottom line for you?
2: Okay, I think there's uh, you know, maybe multiple ways to achieve uh, what the package calls for, uh, but I don't want anybody to lose sight of the urgency with which we need to act. Uh, Again, uh, not just uh, from the the vaccine point of view, definitely to ramp up uh, supply, improve distribution, and ensure equitable administration of the vaccine across the country. But the uh, uh, financial support that's so desperately needed by uh, struggling families across the country, small business owners uh, that are uh, working so hard to keep their doors open state and local governments who provide critical services in each and every community so there's a lot that we uh, certainly need to do uh, and you know, ingrained in this, uh, if we truly uh, appreciate the essential workers that we've come to recognize and respect during uh, the the heat of this pandemic, uh, let's also acknowledge that many of them are immigrants, uh, documented and undocumented, and they deserve not just uh, you know COVID protections and worker protections, but a pathway to citizenship
0: well talking about a pathway to citizenship uh, as we mentioned you have made immigration reform uh, a high priority on your agenda uh, the Biden administration has put together a plan uh, r- your republican colleagues though are uh, singling out the 8 year path to citizenship within that plan calling it a, a path to amnesty so lots of pushback there uh, on the flip side uh, as uh, we discussed on the program last week there are a number of immigration rights uh, rights activists right here in the bay area that are looking at this whole process with a uh, Uh, quite a bit of skepticism, not really uh, confident that the Biden administration is actually going to follow through on this plan. Uh, They feel like, you know, they've watched this story play out before. And uh, here we are many years later with still no immigration reform uh, on a large scale to speak of. So uh, what would you say to those skeptics back at home that aren't sure what to make of this process?
2: Look, my message to the immigrant community is please, please, keep the faith. Uh, The new Senate majority, uh, along with the Biden-Harris administration, is not insignificant. I think the stars are uh, more aligned today than they've been in a long, long time to achieve uh, these reforms. And uh, frankly, a pathway to citizenship uh, for people who have been here undocumented, it's a matter of fairness, a matter of justice. We've come to rely on them even more so during the pandemic, uh, both from a healthcare perspective, many working in the healthcare industry on the front lines, and certainly from an economic uh, perspective, you know, think uh, farm workers, think hospitality workers, think uh, construction, think uh, food service and delivery. Uh, And so it's only fair for those who have uh, risked their lives and put themselves on the front lines to keep the economy going uh, to provide that security uh, and pathway to citizenship. Frankly, you know, eight years, If we can reduce that timetable, uh, that would be more than okay with me. We should seriously consider that. And looking at the affordability of the uh, naturalization process itself, the application fees have been spiked in recent years.
0: Speaking with California Senator Alex Padilla, of course, to make all of that a reality, you do need to get that plan. through the senate which means getting 60 votes uh, there's a lot of calls right now to get rid of the filibuster to lower that bar a little bit what is your stance on getting rid of the filibuster uh
2: look i think uh, it's time for uh Uh, the rules of the Senate, including the filibuster, uh, to uh, reflect modern times. Uh, We saw how the filibuster was used to obstruct a whole lot of progress during the vast majority of the Obama administration. And I have no interest in letting that obstruction continue uh, in the years ahead.
0: Well, switching gears, uh, as California's former Secretary of State, you have had uh, an awful lot of time to think about democracy, the voting system, how this process works. At the federal level, at the national level, uh, we are seeing a breakdown in that democratic system in a way that I I think uh, most of us did not expect to see in our own lifetimes. Uh, Curious for your thoughts on what could be done to restore faith in the democratic process.
2: Yeah, look, Sadly, uh, what we're seeing is the ongoing result uh, of uh, not just Donald Trump, but a lot of his enablers undermining uh, our democracy and uh, the public's uh, confidence in the electoral process. Uh, And it's going to continue to be a danger, so it should continue to be a priority uh, for Congress to address issues, uh, not just of uh, uh, election disinformation, but election security more broadly and fundamental voting rights. The Federal Voting Rights Act that stood to protect our right to vote for more than 50 years uh, was gutted. Uh, by the 2013 uh, Supreme Court decision shall be the holder. And so it's going to remain a top priority this session to restore uh, the the strength of the Federal Voting Rights Act.
0: Now, I know that you've gotten a lot of questions, uh, Senator, about just how progressive your votes in the Senate are going to be. And uh, we got some indication of that just recently when you tweeted out support for uh, a number of uh, liberal policy items, including Medicare for All, a Green New Deal. And uh, I think that that tweet may have come as a little bit of a surprise to those observers who were expecting you to take a somewhat more middle of the road stance on those topics. I'm wondering if you could uh, address that.
2: Uh, Look, this uh, shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody uh, who's known me or my life story. But my parents came to United States uh, in the 1960s in pursuit of the American dream. They work hard, uh, they to, to remember their struggles, their sacrifices so that my brother, my sister and I could get a good education and, and try to get a better life. Uh, that's what the American dream is all about. But sadly, the American dream has been a lot less accessible and uh, it's frankly been under attack for the last four years. And so I will work unabashedly uh, for future generations to still have a shot at the American dream, just like I was blessed with. And of those uh, you know, co- core values, uh, it includes respecting that healthcare is a right, not a privilege. Uh, It means we all have a responsibility to protect the environment uh, for future generations. It means everybody deserves the dignity of a a good job uh, with wages that allow people to provide for their families. Uh, So uh, I look forward to uh, uh, bringing my life experience and my family's journey to the deliberations of the Senate uh, to bring about those tangible improvements to people's lives in California and across the country.
0: Getting back to the theme of compromise, uh, given those progressive priorities that you're laying out right there, uh, is, is there room for collaboration with your Republican colleagues? Are there uh, bridges that can be built there? Okay,
2: I, I believe so. And I'll always remain optimistic that it is possible. You know, if you go back a few years, there was a bipartisan uh, comprehensive immigration reform that was uh, passed by the United States Senate. Uh, I know times have changed in the last uh, seven, eight years, but, you know, that wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things. So, you know, maybe that's a a glimmer of hope. I will tell you uh, in the last week being welcomed to the Senate by uh, colleagues on both sides of the aisle, uh, at least there's uh, an initial uh, interest and willingness to try to find that common ground and uh, make progress for uh, for the people. That's what we're all elected to do. Come here, uh, make a difference uh, and try to improve people's lives.
0: All right. Well, Senator Alex Padilla, thank you very much for joining us and best of luck to you as you start your term during this very interesting moment in American history.
2: Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk again soon.
0: listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. 2020 left behind a bevy of crises in its wake. Today, we're trying to get a handle on just a few of them. Just a second ago, we were talking political crisis with Senator Alex Padilla. Up next, we're going to move on to a very different kind of crisis, the ever-growing challenge of homelessness on California streets. Of course, early on in the pandemic, state and local officials raced to get the unhoused off those streets and into hotel rooms where they've been able to shelter in relative safety. But nearly a year has gone by, and only a small fraction of the people in need have actually been given help. Meantime, even for those who have been given shelter, it's not clear how long they'll be able to hold on to it. So we're going to speak now with Vivian Ho, who's been keeping an eye on this complicated process as the West Coast reporter for The Guardian U.S. Vivian Ho, welcome back to KCBS In Depth.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So when we talk about California's response, uh, we're talking to a large extent about Governor Newsom's Project Roomkey and Project Homekey. Uh, remind us what those programs are and uh, what they've managed to accomplish so far.
1: So Project Roomkey was a, was a program that would take hotel rooms and essentially just house, use them to house homeless individuals and bring them in from off the streets and bring them in from congregate shelters and give them a place to stay during the pandemic. Project Homekey was an extension of that. They were taking these these hotels and motels and turning them into permanent supportive housing for these individuals and gl- allowing them to get out of homelessness. Uh, for long term.
0: So lofty goals here. And uh, the, the general idea being that the more people you get out of crowded shelters, the more people you get off the street, the less this virus is going to spread. But uh, so far, I mean, many thousands have been helped, but that's only a small fraction of the overall number of homeless in California.
1: It was never going to be enough. That was always the problem. Everyone who's looked at this, uh, every all the, the housing advocates, all the Um, people who've worked with unhoused individuals, they've all said the same thing. Project Roomkey, it was a necessary public health intervention, but the scope of it and the scope of the homeless crisis in California, it needed to be much larger. It needed to be done on a much larger scale. In in California, there are about 150,000 unhoused individuals. Project Roomkey has sheltered probably about a fifth of that 22,500 that's not nearly enough and in that time people have been languishing on the streets tent encampments have gone up substantially in cities like san francisco la homeless deaths have surged this year gavin newsom has touted the success of project room key but despite that homeless deaths have surged this year in san francisco the um the COVID Command Center has recorded 203 deaths of of individuals in the streets, while the year before, uh, 91 individuals have died from January to September 2019 uh, versus January to September to, to, to September 2020.
0: Right. And I, I think to some extent, what that speaks to, even though perhaps the spread of Covid nineteen within the homeless population has not been as severe as uh, some had feared., uh, it's thought that that's partially to do with the fact that for folks that are outside, the pandemic does not spread as easily uh, as as for folks inside. So uh, that has been a little bit of a silver lining at least uh, so far. Uh, but when we're talking about those deaths of despair, uh, that just speaks to the massive disruptions that uh, many homeless people have faced. It's been, uh, difficult for them to get medical care
1: but when we went into lockdown and just broken all of our lives including those of unhoused individuals we did we didn't even think about that though we thought about ourselves we thought about how it would affect our day-to-day activities but it, it severely severely impacted how unhoused individuals would get their provisions how they would go to the bathroom where they would go to seek help the places where where unhoused individuals could go were now closed. The places that they would go to stay warm during a day were closed. The places that they would go to get food to stay dry when it rained, they were closed. The places that they would go to clean up, to wash up a little bit, the public restrooms, they were no longer available. Everything was shut off to them. At the beginning of the pandemic, advocates had no solution. The only thing they could do was pass out tents to help out the individuals that were not being helped with Project Roomkey.
0: Speaking with Vivian Ho, a West Coast reporter for the Guardian US uh, about the homelessness crisis in California and the efforts to meet some of the dangers of the pandemic. Uh, so, Vivian you know, when we talk about that Project Home Key, we're, we're, we're sort of talking about long-term solutions for uh, homeless folks, trying to find ways to get them into housing. And that's really been a theme among advocates over the last year, trying to see ways that this mobilization that to help keep homeless uh, people safe during the pandemic, how that can be turned into long-term solutions. Is is there any sign that we're making progress in that regard, uh, uh, that, that we really can turn this crisis into an opportunity in a way?
1: That's always been the dream, and you know, in a way, you know, to, to give Gavin Newsom some credit, um, he he has been able to turn some temporary housing into permanent housing. But the fact is, the scope of the homeless crisis in in California is just so large that it's barely a drop in the bucket. In the meantime, what's happening now at the beginning of the pandemic, we were almost optimistic that the virus was not affecting the homeless population as, as much as we, we originally predicted it would. The theory that was going around was that perhaps a lot of them had already been, been infected by the virus. But as we know now, uh, people can be reinfected and they can be sicker the second time around. And uh, what's happening now in places like LA is that the homeless populations are now getting very, very ill. And so what's happening is that while there is hope for the future and there is permanent housing coming out of this, huge swaths of the population are dying out in the meantime. There were more homeless deaths than ever in the past year. More people than ever are getting sick and more people than ever are still on the streets.
0: Yeah, so... Uh, a lot of pieces that seemed like they were in place now they're on somewhat shakier ground and just the outlook going forward remains as I, as unclear as it's ever been. So I guess just in closing uh, briefly, uh, the, the, this crisis from 2020 is still very much looking more similar to 2020 now than uh, I think that we were hoping it would in this new year.
1: Yes, for sure. It's a very dangerous time for unhoused individuals. And more than ever, they need our compassion and they need our understanding.
0: All right. Uh, We've been speaking right there to Vivian Ho. She once again is the West Coast reporter for The Guardian U.S. Vivian Ho, great to have you back on the program. Thank you. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today in the program, digging ourselves out of the hole that 2020 left us all in, we're examining the many holdover crises that still have yet to be fixed as we enter the new year. For our final segment today, we turn our attention to the crisis in the virtual classroom. Of course, we knew when online learning began last March that it was going to be difficult, but just this past week, a new study has given us an even clearer picture of just how many students are getting left behind. For more, we're joined now by John Fensterwald. He's a writer for the Oakland-based education news outlet EdSource. Welcome to the program, John Fensterwald. Pleasure to be here, Keith. Uh, Well, Governor Newsom has been leading a push to get school districts to reopen, but in just the past few days, uh, it seems that effort has fizzled out. So uh, at the moment, there's really no clear indication of when students in mass might uh, actually make it back into classrooms. And that makes it all the more important to reckon with this problem of learning loss. That's really what we're talking about here, the, the lessons that should have been learned that maybe were not learned as quickly or as well as they should have been. Uh, John Fensterwald, what did we learn from those study results released earlier this week?
3: Well, there have been previous studies about so-called learning loss, which you correctly define. And what we wanted was some California data. And so an organization, a nonprofit organization called PACE, affiliated with universities, did a study of 18 districts with 50,000 students in California, based on two tests that they took, and so it was measuring math and English uh, language arts in grades four to ten. One of them was Santa Ana the largest, but most of them were small, and what they found, verified what we've seen nationally, is that there was a significant learning loss, particularly in the early grades, grades four, five, and six, And particularly for English learners and low-income kids, they bore the disproportionate impact of the learning loss.
0: And this really tracks with, I think, what our expectations would have been. Uh, we know that younger students need more support from teachers. So the fact that they're not getting that, we would expect the, the, their educational attainment to be suffering. And then uh, with uh, lower income students, we've been hearing about the digital divide all year. The fact that many of these students uh, don't have a good way to get online. Some of them are are borrowing mom and dad's uh, iPhone throughout the day and, and just, you know, getting on- online whatever way they can. So uh, it's sort of what we expected to see here in a way.
3: Yeah, precisely Keith. Uh, it, a lot of it is inner. is the lack of connectivity and again this was measured in the fall and it was much worse last spring when we sort of jumped into distance learning but then we're talking about low income kids who often whose parents are out of the house they work, there's less supervision crowded conditions, there's a lot more anxiety that these children are experiencing often they're sharing as you said one connection or one computer with their siblings and so a lot of compounded difficulties that wealthier kids may not have
0: So when we look at the scale of the challenge, I mean, this is just one snapshot in time. Uh, We're talking about percentage numbers. It's kind of hard to make sense of exactly how to interpret all this. Uh, but it does speak to this very broad concern that the school experience that we are able to serve up to students over this past year just has not been serving them in the way that we would have hoped to. And, um, it you know, it brings to mind this term lost generation. There is this fear that these students that uh, are going through school at this moment are going to be something of a lost generation because they've lost so much classroom time that uh, other generations have benefited from. Uh, do, do you think that the results that we're seeing here lend some
3: credence to that notion? Well, you know, Keith that measured again a short period of March to June 2020, but now we're into it another year. So we're heading perhaps to another another year on top of the half a year that we had before. I think it's a it's a great worry. It's important to remember that a standardized test is only one indicator and this was a snapshot in time. Perhaps distance learning teachers are doing it better. Uh, there's not as much this year although it's a longer period of time and and kids are really having a difficult time being engaged but there are other signs you have to worry about as well the the kids who are chronically absent the students who aren't engaged who don't have their screen on signs of anxiety and isolation isolation and and kids are showing up in the emergency room with depression these are sort of the larger mental health and issues that we may extend beyond this year. So we hope it's not a lost generation in terms of their attitude and their feeling towards school, but it's something we really have to worry about.
0: Speaking with John Fensterwald, again, a writer for EdSource. So if we're hoping that it's not a last generation and working towards that goal. What does that what does that work look like? What kinds of support could be given to these students to uh, bridge some of that uh, education gap that uh, we've been talking about?
3: Well this was an initial study and the researchers are very frank that they wanted to get this material out. They'll go back and do some more depth in-depth studies because the legislature right now is considering a lot of money almost six point six billion dollars that the governor's proposed for extended learning for bringing kids back to school this year and then summer school perhaps and then other forms of tutoring. And the study was very clear that it needs to be targeted, particularly for these kids who are disproportionately affected. The governor actually has proposed that. Much of the money that he's proposing would be targeted for these kids. But the study's conclusion was, very frank, without aggressive and bold actions, it said, these students may never catch up. So any funding or support designed to mitigate learning loss, must be targeted specially, specifically to the students who need it most. And that sort of says it all.
0: And I was reading through some of your predictions uh, for 2021. You actually put out an article recently for Education Predictions on 2021 that's up on EdSource right now. And you were talking about the possibility for increased summer schooling uh, this summer when students perhaps can go back into the classroom. Uh, what, what did you have in mind there?
3: Well, it, it will be the option of the districts whether to do a summer school now or extend the school later. But the I predicted that the governor was going to put a lot of resources in it. And sure enough, I mean, it was a, a pretty safe prediction. And he is proposing that now. Summer school may be one option. But then I think it, teachers are saying we're really worn out now and students really need to be brought back for fun activities, not just your traditional summer school of, of learn and test, because these are students who have been disconnected for school for a year. They've been disconnected with each other for a year, and it's really important to bring the students back, but to do it in a way that promotes long-term learning.
0: Yeah, I mean, it just it just seems like such a difficult situation because, uh, as you said, everybody is is worn out and uh, there's just not enough time in the day to uh, attend to all these needs that are out there. What do you think that parents should be keeping in mind who are worried about the possibility for uh, some education loss? I mean, is there is there something is there a positive role parents could be playing?
3: I think they can, particularly for the younger students, Keith, they should be engaging their own students, reading to them, looking for fun activities, and also talking to their teachers. What are their teachers' sense about their student? Are they engaged? What are the issues going on? And also to, to look for ways to see if their own kids are engaged, to go in and see, in fact, is the screen on or not? If it's not on, there may be a sign that the student really is sort of zoned out or doing something else. And so these are little things, but important things that parents need to do and just talk to their teachers and show their concern. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we've been talking about online education, what it'll take to make it
0: work. But I think really the question for a lot of parents right now is when will school get back in the classroom? And uh, I guess we'll just close on that point. Uh, We have a lot of confusing signals over this past week. Uh, Certainly, the debate over when that should happen is,
3: is seems to be heating up right
0: now. What is your sense of what parents should expect?
3: I think that one of the surprises we're seeing is that the case rates of COVID is falling, the case rates are falling, and then they could fall quite rapidly. And so the question is, how do we get these systems in place, perhaps testing uh, of students to see what the, something called surveillance testing, testing to see what the frequency is, and also to get the classrooms ready. Uh, And all this can be done. I think it needs to be negotiated or discussed, at least, with teachers unions to bring them back to an environment that they feel safe. But the other thing, Keith, is vaccinations.
0: Yeah. So a lot of things that still need to come into place. And uh, I guess we're just going to have to watch that story unfold as well. Uh, We have been speaking once again to John Fensterwald. He's a writer for the Oakland-based education news outlet, EdSource. John Fensterwald, thanks so much.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: This has been KCBS In-Depth. Remember, you can find past editions of the program online at the KCBS website or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well, we'll see you next week.